Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we're very lucky to have an articulate and really um, passionate about her work guest today. Her name is Jen Abrams, and she works with the Planned Parenthood Sexual Assault and Crime Victim Services. And I met her because we had both gone, she was a member of the forum, I was in the audience, to an event at Albany Law School recently, and our readers are familiar with this because I wrote reams about it, I thought it was so important. It was um, screening a movie, Very Young Girls, a documentary by Rachel Lloyd, and it, it brought home the problems with sex trafficking. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to just start with what your work consists of. Tell us a little about what it is you do at Planned Parenthood. Our Planned Parenthood is very fortunate to have a team of advocates. We're victim advocacy services. And we cover the Planned Parenthood Mohawk region. So that covers eight counties that we serve, which is Fulton, Montgomery, Hamilton, Schenectady, Schoharie, Warren, Washington, and Saratoga. And what we do is support survivors of sexual assault and sexual violence and also other crimes. However, primarily we uh, work with sexual assault survivors. We provide advocacy for them uh, with law enforcement, with school, with family, with anyone that they feel they need an advocate for in the courts, uh, medical, mental health. We also provide accompaniment to courts, uh, to police stations to give statements, and for the forensic uh, rape exam, which is a very traumatic time for someone. Uh, having an advocate is so very important when you're going through a process like this because people don't really know what to do when something like this happens. And having someone by your side who has no other agenda, we're not associated with law enforcement, we're not associated with any other organization, we are strictly there for the survivor to make sure that they understand the process, that they understand what their rights are, and that they're given all of the information that they need to be able to make informed decisions about what to do next. It sounds like a really important role in a very large territory. It is a large territory. So are these services free to They victims? are all free, completely free. And let's say we have somebody listening who might want to use those services. How, how would they get in touch with you? How would they... At, you know, start this process if they... Well, we do have a 24-hour hotline. Uh, the phone number for one of the hotlines, and this one covers Fulton County, Hamilton, Montgomery, Saratoga, Warren, and Washington, is 866-307-4086. And in Schenectady and Schoharie counties, you can reach us by calling 518-346-2266. So one of the methods is that you can self-refer by using the hotline. We also get a lot of our referrals from hospitals and law enforcement when somebody shows up there saying that they've been um, assaulted. So we may be going directly to the emergency room to accompany someone or directly to the police station. We also see folks that are not, um, the, the assault is not new. 
So it may have been some years ago that someone was assaulted and they've decided that they're in a point in their life where they would like to do something about that. And whether that's just talking to someone or filing a police report or uh, working with families so that maybe this person can share with her spouse that she was sexually assaulted or her parents or his or her parents. So we do take walk-ins. Um, we also get referrals from our Planned Parenthood clinics because sometimes uh, we have people disclosing when they're in their appointment for, you know, it could be for, they could go there for an STD check and say, I'm here because I was assaulted. And in that case, the nurse would simply come down to our office because we are located in, we have a location in the Johnstown Clinic, we have a location in our Queensbury Clinic, and we have a location in Schenectady. So in those three clinics, someone could just get us, and we would come down and see someone directly on the spot. Uh, We also get referrals from mental health. We get referrals from, a lot of referrals from schools. So there are many different ways that people connect to us. And I can't tell you how many times someone has connected with us over a number that they saw on a pen that we and hand Jen out at campuses. Pen, <laughs> the very <laughs> pen in question. So I see these are like distributed. And then when someone needs it, they look exactly, at the number. Exactly. Yes. Oh, oh, what a great idea. We tell someone, you know, we hope you that you never need this. But statistically, one in four women and one in seven males experience sexual assault in their lifetime. So there's a good chance that you may know somebody, unfortunately, that this happened to or will happen to. So it's good to have the resource. Yes, I think as a society, we're becoming much more aware of just how frequent it is. And one in four for women and one in seven for men is certainly high. Mm -hmm. Does the Me Too movement affect your work? Are more people likely since that started to come forward? Yes. After the Me Too movement started, we did have a little spike in disclosures. Mm -hmm. Um, We do a lot of tabling events at campuses and health fairs and different community um, events. And we did have people coming to the table. Uh, We had people making appointments saying that the reason they they were brave enough to come forward was, was because of the Me Too movement. So I think that we are experiencing something miraculous. I don't think that women have ever, not just women, survivors have felt this comfortable coming forward maybe ever. So we anticipate that the numbers will continue to grow. So do you have the staff to handle that? And are you in need of volunteers? We are always in need of volunteers. Well, Thank you for asking. about what, what it I'm assuming there's quite a bit of training that has to take place for a volunteer to be useful. Tell us if someone is listening and wants to volunteer, what it would entail and how they would begin that process. Okay. So our volunteer positions are a little different in that they're very hands-on. So they would actually be responding to emergency room calls. So you're correct in assuming that there's a lot of training that has to go along with that. There is a 40-hour mandatory training program through the Department of Health that every volunteer has to take, Um, and we do that. They would do that with Nicole. Uh, Nicole is our volunteer coordinator. 
And what is her last name? Her last name is uh, Margiaso Tran. Okay. And she can be reached at 518-374-5353. She is wonderful. Uh, this is a relatively newer position. We, prior to having a volunteer coordinator, the county coordinators kind of uh, recruited from their own areas. But we found that as we became busier and busier and busier and expanded and added counties, that it was getting difficult to handle that. So we hired a designated volunteer coordinator that recruits and trains from our eight-county area. So that it's a big job, but she's very good at it. And she, a lot of the training is online, but before anybody can go out on an actual call, they have to shadow with the trained staff. So they would shadow with trained staff um, on an emergency room call or at the Child Advocacy Center where we see our children who have been assaulted. Um, and then they would also have to be shadowed by staff on their first call. And a volunteer doesn't take calls until they really feel like they're ready. So the volunteer position entails covering the 24-hour hotline and responding accordingly. The cases are then passed on to a permanent staff member, and the staff member finishes the rest of the case, provides the counseling or the advocacy, the accompaniment, and so forth. But it really is a volunteer job that is very hands-on. If you are interested in giving back to your community, this is a really good way to do that. Um, I know that it's not for everybody. It can be very heavy work, but it is emotionally heavy. It is mean, a, can right? be emotionally yeah. heavy, but it's also very gratifying and a wonderful way to to give back to the community. So, do you find when you're doing that kind of work that the police and the hospital staff are generally kind of clued in to the need of the victim, or is the advocacy role something where? you know, a volunteer has to be able to kind of stand up for the victim. How, exactly. how does that unfold typically? Well, I think a lot of it depends on where you go. Mm-hmm. So one of the big initiatives that we've been working on in my group for the last couple of years is educating first responders on trauma-informed care and response. So, for example, when a police officer is involved in an incident at work where a weapon is fired, um, there's a, a waiting period before the officer gives a statement. There are reasons for that. Um, and this is kind of how I relay that when I'm speaking with law enforcement, because there have been times where law enforcement would show up right at the emergency room right after someone's been assaulted for, to get a statement. And that's a very difficult time for someone in trauma. They're not able they're not able to produce a timeline, for example. There are pieces that are missing. The way that um, Dr. Rebecca Campbell explains it is that it's sort of like taking a puzzle and throwing it on the floor and taking some pieces out and then asking someone to put the puzzle together. It's not in the right order. There are pieces that are missing. It's difficult to get a whole picture, and the whole picture might not become clear for weeks, months, 
years or ever. So making sure that law enforcement understands that if somebody's statement changes, it's not necessarily because they're dishonest. It's because maybe they're remembering something or maybe um, they're remembering something differently than they were remembering it when it first occurred. So that is one of our challenges, and some law enforcement agencies are better at that than others, and some people are better at that than others. Um, I don't know that law enforcement is trained to be warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Their job is to go in there and get the facts of the case. So another thing that we're working on is helping law enforcement understand that while we are there for the victim, we can also kind of help them do their job by attending to the emotional needs of the survivor while they are trying to get the facts of the case. Um, We can answer the same question 20 times if we have to. When somebody's in trauma and shock and someone is giving them information, they are probably not remembering it or remembering very little. So we act as liaisons between the law enforcement agencies and our survivors to hold information for them, to find out the status of the case, any court events that are coming up, um, to help them register for VINE, which is a notification that a perpetrator might be getting out of jail. Uh, We help them get protection orders, all kinds of different things. So we actually can be helpful to law enforcement. And I think that the law enforcement agencies that utilize us the most know that. And that's why they continue to utilize us. As far as hospitals go, again, they're all very different. Um, Schenectady and, and Warren County, we work very closely with them. Uh, our grants help to pay for the sexual assault nurse examiners to be trained. So we have good, solid relationships in those two hospitals. Um, They know what the protocols are. They know to call us. uh, They know to involve us. Um, We are working more closely with the rural hospitals in our areas to um, try to get them some more funding to help train nurses, specifically for sexual assault nurse examiners. Um, one of the issues there is that sexual assault nurse examiners need a certain amount of hours to become certified. And they do this by doing exams. And because there are, are fewer in the rural counties, it's difficult for them to get their hours. So we have built some sexual assault response teams, which are multidisciplinary teams that consist of law enforcement, uh, CPS workers, hospital staff, anybody that would be involved in a case. And we work on the needs of survivors. What are the needs? What are the needs in the hospitals? What are the needs with law enforcement? What are the needs with with Child Protective? And it's kind of a joint effort to be able to provide a better outcome for survivors, which is very much needed. Yeah, it sounds like very important work. Well, I'm sure you have... More stories than we could tell in the short time we <laughs> yes. have, but one that stood out for me that you shared at the forum, and just to let our listeners know, <clears throat> this was a forum, of course, about sex trafficking. So um, it was 
and I was surprised to learn there that the average age um, of a girl being trafficked is 13. Isn't that something? And yeah, Jen shared this story of a girl who was trafficked by her mother as a very young child and if you could just do you know the story that I'm talking about could you just share that because Mm -hmm. it it really I get goosebumps just thinking Mm -hmm. about it 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 makes you realize with the sex trafficking how our attitudes have been shaped to blame the victim right and just tell that story if you would I will I will so I was an addictions counselor prior to my life as a program manager for Victim Advocacy Services. And while I was working in a residential um, halfway house, one of the clients that came to us um, over time shared her story with me. And she was someone who had been an addict for a very, very long time. She had been through the systems She had been arrested multiple times. She had been hospitalized multiple times. She had lost everything that was important to her, her family, her health. Um, But she was ready. She was ready to get clean. So she came to us, and when she came to us, it was Christmas time. And we had a big tree up, and she told me that it was the first time in her life that she had ever celebrated Christmas. And she was in her late 30s at that time. So even as a child, there was never any acknowledgement of of holiday. She told me that when she was seven years old, she was trafficked by her mother. She was given to the landlord to help pay the rent. So the mother would send her upstairs to the landlord for a couple of hours. And then he would bring her back down. And that would be the rent. So she progressed from there into running away from home, into becoming a prostitute, um, becoming an addict, becoming very ill. And she ended up having to go to grand jury to testify in a case where she was sexually assaulted while she was prostituting. And the thing that struck me so much about this was that this woman had the wherewithal while she was being assaulted, because it had happened to her so many times, that she planted evidence so that they could catch him. We don't usually think of prostitutes as being assaulted, and I think that's one Mm -hmm. of the things we have to change as a society inside each of us, because, go ahead. I've worked with many prostitutes. And they have all shared with me stories about rape. So this this woman uh, did have the wherewithal to plant evidence. She planted a barrette deep down in his car seat. She uh, said afterward that she needed to urinate. So she went into the alley next to where they were and urinated and so that her urine would be mixed with his sperm. Um, and there were a couple of other things that she did, but they did catch this guy. And this guy had assaulted multiple prostitutes. So, you know, just amazing to me that she was so disconnected from her body because it had happened to her so many times from such a young age that she was able to think clearly enough to be doing these things was just 
So it was so sad to me. It's, I mean, good for her that she was able to get this guy th- thrown away, thrown in jail. But how sad for her to be so desensitized and disconnected from her own trauma that she was able to think that clearly. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. Mm. I'm hoping maybe you can share some of your own story. I understand that you were in the military and suffered some harassment there. I absolutely did, yes. Yeah, tell us a little about, first of all, what made you join where, what what branch did you join, and what were your thoughts, as, and how old were you? Okay. I joined the Army when I was 25, so I was kind of older. Um, in fact, my drill sergeants used to call me Grandma, which was not my favorite thing. <laughs> but I joined the military after um, leaving college. Um, I had some negative experiences and life things happening, and I couldn't continue with school. And I needed a direction. So I joined the military. Uh, I joined as a communications specialist. And the harassment started immediately (laughs) after getting to basic training. Um, There were several drill sergeants there that were having sexual relationships with, um, with new recruits. Were they consensual relationships? Or they were consensual relationships, but there's a power dynamic. Right. And it's not appropriate. And, I mean, it's very much a control dynamic. They control everything that you do. They control when you sit down, when you stand up, when you eat, when you go to the bathroom. So, um, you know, and these girls felt special. They felt like somebody was paying attention to them. And I was a little older. I think that's why it didn't happen to me then. Um, But when I went to my advanced training in Fort Gordon, Georgia, there was a gentleman there who propositioned me to take nude photographs. And he told me that the photographs were going to be sent to catalogs. And the reason that I had to be nude was because they needed my exact dimensions. And that we were going to do this at some hotel and I knew, I mean, as soon as the man started talking, what his game was. So I reported that, and he retired. Now, he had been a trainer at that school for about 30 years. So thinking to myself about how many girls might have fallen into that trap over the years, I can't even imagine. Um, you know, you have someone fresh, 18 years old, coming from home, and someone propositioning them that way. I'm glad that he resigned, but I would have liked to have seen there be more of a consequence. However, I'm sad to report that that was not the worst thing that happened. The worst thing that happened was that I was physically assaulted by my section sergeant when I was in Korea because I would not date him. And he... Couldn't understand why I wouldn't date him. Um, He thought maybe it was because I was a racist, which was not the case. The case was that I was repulsed by him, and he was also my section sergeant. Um, However, he came to my room under the guise of doing an inspection, and he assaulted me in the room. And um, 
as soon as I could get away, I ran to my first sergeant and I told him what happened. The next day, this man was removed. Um, there were no other consequences for him. He was moved to another post. And word got back to my teammates, who were all male, that um, the reason he was gone was because there was an incident with me. And from that point forward, I was completely ostracized by my team. And I was skipped over for promotion. And it was a very, very difficult time. Um, I'm happy to see that a lot is being done now in the military to help survivors. However, it's still happening. It's still happening. And, you know, my daughter was interested in joining the military, and I don't know how to respond to that. How, how old is your daughter? She's 16. Oh, gosh. So she's right on the cusp of mm-hmm. actually making these life right. decisions. That is a hard thing to know how to respond. It is It is hard because the Army gave me so many things. It gave me confidence. It gave me direction. It gave me a career. It gave me my husband. It gave me um, a lot of great things. And it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. So... It's, it's really conflicting. It, it brings up a lot of conflicting feelings for me because I think that the military experience itself, aside from the harassment and things that go on, is a wonderful experience for a young person. I think it really does shape your life. And I encourage a lot of young women to go that way that are not sure how they want to go. But it is a conflict for me with my own child because I know what I went through, and I would hate for her to have to go through that. And it was it was other little things. Like I was on a work detail. Um, I was the only female sent to a work detail um, out in California in the desert. There had to be over 100 men there, and I was the only female. And we were loading tanks and trucks onto railroad cars, and... One of the lieutenants came up to me and told me to give my gloves to a male soldier because he didn't want me to get hurt. (laughs) And I said, you know, I I was chosen for this detail because someone thinks that I can do the job. And he said that he didn't want me to get hurt. And he happened to be African-American. And I asked him, I said, do you like it when people treat you differently because you're African-American? And he said, no. And I said, I don't like it when people treat me differently because I'm female. And he let me have my gloves, and I went back to work. But you know, there were other, uh, one of my lieutenants asked me if I wanted to be his driver. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do what I was trained to do. Um, I was offered other kind of cush jobs while I was there. So it is a difficult place for women. And maybe it's less difficult depending on what kind of a job that you choose when you go there. But the job that I was in was pretty male-dominated, so um, it was difficult. It was difficult. Where do you get your inner strength? Because it seems like you had that to start with in order to navigate through these without further deep damage to yourself. Where, where does that come from in you? Maybe it's genetic. <laughs> <laughs> I come from a long line of really strong women, so I thank them every day for giving me that gift of resilience and strength. Yeah. 
Well, I'm impressed. So just kind of on a practical level, I hope you would share, because I learned a lot listening to you at the forum about, I take it you do quite a bit of work with young people or in schools, because you were talking about things like sextortion, which I had never heard of. But if you could kind of just, I don't mean recreate a whole school (laughs) presentation, but just kind of get the word out for some of the things that some of our younger listeners because we skew young, I think, on the podcast, what, you know, what they might watch out for, the kinds of things you would share with them. Well, right now, we're doing a lot of programming about bystander intervention. We feel that this is very important for preventing all kinds of crimes, but especially sexual violence crimes and bullying. Um, There's a lot of that going on, both cyberbullying, bullying um, in school, uh, And there's a lot of heads looking the other way. So bystander intervention programs are one of our most requested programs in schools. I'm going to be doing one next week at Fort Plain High School. Um, Other programs that we do a lot of are healthy relationships programs, programs about consent, programs about cyber safety, programs about um, boundaries, all kinds of different things. If I had to put a message out to kids today, I would say, don't sext. (laughs) Do not send nude pictures of yourself to anybody. That is what I would say. And I know... this is a common practice. Very, very common. A lot of kids are doing this. And uh, kids that I wouldn't have thought would do that because there were, you know, not that... Kids from good families don't do make bad choices, but I think that kids that are stable, intelligent, engaged kids that know better are still doing this, and and know, they share them with friends, boyfriends. They share them with they, their, with boyfriends. Okay, mm-hmm. and then they fall in the wrong hands, or they break right. up in something. Exactly. Then, so, how many high school relationships stay together forever? Yeah. Not very many, right? Right. So what is somebody going to do with that picture? Are they going to delete it after you guys break up? Or are they going to share it with their friend, right? Or more than one friend? This is happening a lot. And once somebody has a nude photo of you, they have you. They have, they can manipulate you. They can say, if you don't send another one, I'm going to share this. Or if you don't do this online and send it to me, I'm going to send your picture to the whole school. Um, That's where the sextortion part comes in. So it's just what it says. Extortion, except it's for sex. Um, There have been arrests made across the country of men who sextort uh, teenage girls up to 50, 60, 90 victims at a time, Um, and some of them as young as 12. So I would encourage young people to be very careful about who they're talking to online, and I would not send a nude picture. Another thing that kids don't realize is that if they're sending a nude picture of someone who is a minor, then that means that they are distributing child pornography, which is a felony. So 
there was an incident where a, a kid took a picture of his sister in the shower and then he shared it at school. And he got arrested for distributing child pornography. Um, that is something that stays with you forever. I mean, that doesn't go away. That affects your ability to work. It affects your ability to obtain housing. Um, it puts you, could put you on the uh, offender registry. So I would say to kids, you know, keep it from the head up or keep your clothes on, but do not send nude pictures. Good advice. Yes. Tell us just the kind of heart of the bystander education. What what does that consist of? Getting people to get involved when they see harassment? Right. So the bystander intervention program offers different styles for people to be able to use to intervene. Because not everybody is comfortable directly intervening in a situation like that. Um, there are a multitude of reasons why bystanders don't get involved. They're afraid they might become the target. They don't want to be seen as a snitch. They are afraid of physical injury. Um, they're afraid of betraying a friend. They feel like it's somebody else's business. Someone else will take care of it. So um, we offer kids some different styles to be able to uh, help. One of them is to address it directly. Um, through walking up to either the person who is the aggressor or the person on the receiving end of that and saying, what's going on here? Are you guys okay? Or looking at the um, target and saying, do you need to go for a walk? Would you like to come with me? Um, That would be a a direct intervention. Of course, we encourage kids not to directly intervene in any situation that would make them physically unsafe. So if there's a, a big fight or if there's weapons, that is not the time for any kind of direct intervention. Um, there's also a distract technique, which uh, is kind of creating a diversion. So, for instance, you might yell out, the cops are here, or you know, there's the principal's coming, or you might even spill a drink on somebody that you think is aggressing someone else. Oh, sorry. You know, anything to kind of interrupt that path that's going to lead to that violence. Just something to um, distract from what's happening. The last one is um, delegate. So that's very simple. You just go get somebody in charge or go get uh, an authority figure or another friend or call the police or call a trusted adult. So it gives kids an opportunity to be involved without being directly involved. Um, We also talk about the bystander effect. So you know Kitty Genovese, the Kitty Genovese story. Kitty Genovese was uh, murdered in Queens, New York in 1964. Uh, There's different um, accounts of how many witnesses there were. It was like in, in an apartment complex. It was in an apartment where complex, had yes. windows opening onto mm-hmm. the place where she was attacked. Yeah. Right. And it went on for 30 minutes, the attack. The attack went on for 30 minutes. It started, and then it stopped, and then it started again. Um, the accounts range from 12 to 38 witnesses. Uh, so the bystander effect says that the more people that are witnessing an event, the less likely it is that someone will call for help or intervene. Oh, because there's a sense that somebody else will do it? Exactly. Mm. It's like a diffusion of responsibility. So 
everybody thinks that it's someone else's responsibility to take care of this. And if nobody is, then there's kind of a collective thinking that happens that, well, then this must be okay. So that's why you see so many times um, people live streaming videos of rape in a crowd full of people and nobody getting involved. Or um, riots, things, you know, big events that you would think, even something as simple as a car accident, you know, somebody pulled over on the side of the road and nobody is stopping. Everybody's going by, everybody can see that there's something there, but nobody is stopping because someone will stop, but it's not going to be you. So it becomes almost a group think. Exactly. Yes. So we talk about the bystander effect with the kids and what that is. And then we do something really fun at the end, which is a reactive relay, we call it. And this is a way for kids to use the knowledge that we just taught them in a fun way and be active. Uh, We set it up in a gym, and the PE staff and all the teachers are involved. We break all the kids down into teams. And then my teammates and I read scenarios, And the kids, after the scenario, kind of take a couple of minutes to think about it. And then they take turns racing to the end of the gym and writing down on a sheet of paper what they could do, what would be a good solution. But there's a twist because they can't just run. They have to jump rope down or they have to ride tricycles or hula hoops. And, uh, you know, then a prize is awarded for the team that gets the most uh, appropriate correct answers because they're not all appropriate, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have a lot of fun with that. And one of the big things that we try to do when we're working with kids is to always make it relevant, always make it current, and always try to make it fun so that they remember what we've taught them. Unfortunately, our time has gone really fast. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave people with? You've been really articulate in informing us all. Thank you. Um, I would just like to end with the thought that if someone discloses to you that someone has been sexually assaulted, the best thing that you can do is believe them. I know that there is a lot of victim blaming going on. There's a lot of talk that people cry rape. Even with the Me Too movement, I've heard many women say to me, why now? Why all of a sudden do you think all of these women are coming forward? Don't you think that's fishy? So statistically, rape and sexual assault are no more falsely reported than any other type of crime, which puts it at about 4 to 7%. So you have nothing to lose by believing someone. So believe If someone tells you that they have been a victim of a sexual crime, believe them. Because that can make all the difference. That does make all the difference. That makes all the difference. Well, thank you, Jen. Thank you. 